We're starting a new sermon series today, and before we jump into that, this is Gospel Community Week, and so Gospel Communities are kicking off this week. We have them most of the days this week, and if you have not yet signed up for one, that's okay. Just come on Wednesday night, because there are three that are meeting on Wednesday night. Um, you can really come anytime, uh, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. There are groups that are meeting here on all of those nights, and uh, you could come and, and find a group, and that'd be fine. Even if you didn't sign up, just grab a loaf of bread at the store, and there's your potluck. Um, and so come out. There's three different ones on Wednesday night. You could find a group that, that would fit, and uh, well, I would encourage you to do that even if you didn't sign up. Just come and check it out. Um, okay, that's all the announcements I had. Uh, we're starting a new series called Hallowed Be Thy Name. We're going to be looking at some of the names of God uh, in the Old Testament. Now, there are too many names of God in the Old Testament for us to cover all of them. That would take like a whole year of preaching. So we're just going to hit a few uh, this fall, and we're starting it off today. And I thought it'd be fun to start off talking about God's name uh, by talking about some of the names that Corinne and I are looking at for our baby girl that is due in about five and a half weeks. Um, so just a little background. We are uh, in conflict about the name. And I have some names I like, and so because I have a platform, I'm going to share my names, and then you could put pressure on Corinne. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, so one of the names is Clotilda, uh, which is a French name. My last name is Fuquay, which is French, and I like this name because it means famous in battle. So, you know, it's not that, that my boys are going to keep the other boys away from their sister, She's going to keep the girls away from her brothers because she's going to be famous in battle, right? So Clotilda, I don't know why Corinne doesn't like Clotilda, uh, but anyway, um, another name I like is Etiennette, uh, Etiennette Fuquay, that sounds really cool. Um, that means woman with a crown, okay. Uh, Avriel uh, is related to the word April and it means to open the flowers of spring, Oh. Everybody say, ah, oh, right? Uh, or Eugenie, Eugenie Fuquay. That means noble. Um, these aren't real names that we're considering. They're just fun, <laughs> fun girl names and their meaning. And the reason I shared that is because names have meanings. Do you know the meaning of your name? Um, and in our society, names don't really mean much. We pick names based on what sounds good with our last name or based on uh, my dad's middle name is Scott, so I got to name one of my kids Scott or something like that. Um, and that's how we tend to pick names in our society. But in the time that the Bible was written, the Bible was written over about 1,500 years, uh, covers several thousand years of human history that's recorded in Scripture. And for pretty much all of that, so for most of the known human history of the world, names were very, very significant. Names told you something about who you are. Uh, names were extremely important. So for example, uh, there's an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. And he prophesied at a time when Israel was being unfaithful to God. And so God told Hosea to name one of his sons Jezreel, which means God scatters. Because God was going to scatter his people into exile for their idolatry, right? Another uh, Old Testament prophet was named Isaiah. And God told Isaiah to name one of his kids Shear Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. 
So here in the names of two kids, we see that God's going to judge his people by scattering them into exile. And yet, even though they were not faithful, God is still always faithful and he would bring a remnant out of exile back to uh, Israel. And that's exactly what happened in history. They were conquered by the Babylonians. They went into exile. 70 years later, a remnant returned. The name Jesus was originally pronounced Yeshua, and it means Yahweh, which is God's Old Testament name, Yahweh saves. They didn't just pick the name Jesus because it sounded good. They picked it because it told something about God and about what God was going to do through his son, who was God and the flesh, Yahweh saves. So God has a lot of different names in the Bible, and we're going to look at some of the names um, this fall. I would encourage you, if you want to look more into the names of God, there are two really good books that Joe Bariga shared with me. One is called Praying the Names of God, and the other is called Praying the Names of Jesus, both authored by Ann Spangler. They're um, devotionals. So each week there's a name for God and then there are devotional readings and prayers throughout the, the week that focus on that name, that particular name. They're excellent. I've read them both, fabulous books. Uh, so there would be a, a recommendation I would have for you if you wanna go more in depth with the names of God. But we're, we're going to be talking about God's names. Every one of God's names reveals something about who he is, his character. Um, his mission in the world, something about God. And I wonder how often do we stop for a moment and think about God's names and, and, and what they mean and what they teach us about his character and how often do we pray his names over our lives, over our families, over our church, over our workplaces, over our schools. Uh, I, that's what I wanna get at in this series. And, and so, like I said, we can only hit a few of the names of God this fall. But what we're going to do is we're, we'll start off with the name Yahweh Shalom. What does the name Yahweh Shalom mean? Well, Yahweh is the Old Testament name for God. Say Yahweh and Shalom Yahweh Shalom, that's a Hebrew name, uh, and Yahweh means literally, I am. When Moses met God uh, at the burning bush in the book of Exodus, and God said, go back to Egypt and bring my people out of slavery, tell them that God sent you, Moses said, what's your name? How am I gonna show them that, that the God of Israel is the God who sent me and not some other God? And God said, my name is Yahweh which literally means I am. A couple of things that we learn from that. God simply is. He is uncreated. He, he, he exists and his existence does not depend on anything or anyone else. Every one of us exists because a mom and a dad, and that happened, right? And that's why we're here. If that had not happened, we would not exist. That's not how it is with God. God exists completely within himself. He's not dependent on anything else for his existence. He is uncreated. He is the only thing that is uncreated and everything else that exists in the material universe, every atomic particle, all the way up to every star and everything in between and every form of life, all of it depends upon God for its very existence. God is the great I am. He is uncreated. He is also eternal. God did not tell Moses, uh, here's who sent you, I was. 
or uh, here's who sent you. I'm studying so that someday I can be. No, God's name is I am. God is eternal. There's never been a time when God did not exist. And there will never be a time when God ceases to exist because he is. He never stops existing. Yahweh means I am. And uh, when you read in the Old Testament, you say, well, I've never seen Yahweh. And why do, we, why do we spell it without vowels? Well, ancient Hebrew did not have vowels, interestingly enough. Their written language only had consonants. So they would write it Y-H-W-H. It was a Hebrew script, but uh, these, are the, these are the sounds. And you, you might not notice that spelled out in your Bible because it's translated into English as Lord in all caps. So if you're reading the Bible and you see the Lord God this or the Lord God that, and the word Lord is in all capitals, it's translating this word Yahweh. The ancient Israelites had a tremendous reverence for the name of God. In fact, they held it in such a high regard that when the scribes were writing down the scriptures by hand, because before the 14th century, everything had to be written by hand. So when they were copying the Bible for the next generation and they were writing it by hand, every time they would come to the word Yahweh in scripture, they would put down their pen and pick up a brand new one that had never been used before and then they would write Yahweh and then they would throw that pen away. So that pen was only used one time to write God's name one time. And then they would go to the next verse and they'd be writing and where it said Yahweh, they would get a new pen and they would write his name and then they would stop using it. Because they had such high regard, they said, I don't want this pen that's written other things to also write God's name. They had a respect and a reverence and an awe for the name of God. And I wonder sometimes if we have a reverence for God's name or if we just kind of toss it around flippantly like it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, So Yahweh means I am. Yahweh shalom, the word shalom is translated in English Bibles as peace. Uh, And it certainly does mean peace, but it means a whole lot more. The English word peace means tranquility, quietness, calm, the absence of conflict, Like when my kids go to school and there's peace, (sighs) right? And that's that's what the English word peace means. And shalom means all of those things, but it also means a lot more. Shalom means harmony. It means wholeness. It means well-being. It means completeness. Everything is as it should be, as God created it to be, everything in its place, everything fulfilling its purpose in concert with creation. That's what the word shalom means. Of course there's not conflict because nothing is in conflict with anything else. We're all in harmony with what God created and who God created us to be. We get glimpses of shalom when we experience the transcendent beauty of a mountain range or when we stand on the beach and we look out at the ocean And that feeling that you get inside is shalom. This is what God created. This is the beauty that God intended. Right, when when we hear a symphony and every instrument in the orchestra is playing its part in concert with all the other instruments and nobody else is trying to draw uh, attention to themselves or, or overplay or outplay the others, but everyone is working together to produce the peace and we get a glimpse of shalom. 
We get a glimpse of shalom when we uh, eat a meal that has been perfectly seasoned and prepared and every flavor is just right and there's not too much salt and not too little salt and everything works just the right way. Those are little glimpses of shalom. The name Yahweh Shalom first appears in the Bible in Judges chapter six. It's the story of Gideon. Uh, So the Israelites had been unfaithful to God and uh, the Midianites had come in and conquered them and they were very oppressive and God meets a man named Gideon and tells him to go out and gather an army and rescue his people from the Midianites. And Gideon is is like, I don't know if you're really God, so prove to me that you are Yahweh. And the Lord says, uh, I want you to to prepare a meal and um, put it on this rock. And then he reaches down with his staff and touches the rock and the whole meal goes up in flames and then he disappears. And Gideon says, oh my goodness, I have just seen Yahweh face to face. And he's afraid because he's going to die. And then the Lord speaks to him and says, peace, shalom. Do not be afraid, you're not going to die. And so Gideon builds an altar in that place and he names the altar Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. The question that I have is, if God is peace for us, why do we not experience peace? If God is our Shalom and we serve God, why do we not experience Shalom? I could pull any number of headlines from the news to show you that the world does not have shalom. We already know this. Here's just one example. According to uh, UNICEF, about 8,500 children starve to death every day in the world. 3.1 million kids starve to death globally every year. Yesterday, 8,500 children starved to death. Tomorrow, about 8,500 children will starve to death. While we sit here singing and preaching, about 354 children will starve to death during our worship service. Meanwhile, in the United States, 42% of adults and 19% of children struggle with obesity. And the United States throws away about 40% of the food that we produce every year. So in our country, we have so much excess food that we struggle with obesity and throw 40% of it away while 3.1 million children die of starvation. That doesn't sound like shalom to me. Like everything is as it should be. Everything is functioning in its rightful place. The world is, is complete and whole. So if God is our peace, why do we not have peace? Or maybe the question to ask is this one, how can we have shalom? How can there be peace? And I wanna look at the creation story in Genesis chapters one through three to to tell us, to answer this question of how we can have shalom. Now I'm not gonna read all three of those chapters, that would be a long reading, Um, but in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he created all that exists, all the plants, all the animals, all, he created Adam and Eve, the first two people. Uh, he, he put them in the Garden of Eden. He gave them one command. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, they're in the Garden of Eden, uh, and then the serpent tempts them, tricks them, lies to them. Uh, they choose to believe the lie and reject God, and they eat the fruit that they're not supposed to eat. 
they disobeyed God, and then they were exiled out of the Garden of Eden after God tells them some of the consequences of their actions. And you're, I would encourage you to read that story this week, uh, but I wanna pull out a few insights from that story that show us what happened to our shalom and how can we get it back. The first thing is this, that we were created in shalom. God intended us to have peace from the very beginning. We were created in shalom with God. Adam and Eve were made in God's image. And Genesis 3.8 tells us that God came every day and walked with them in the garden. It's this beautiful picture of God and his children spending time together in harmony and peace. We were created in shalom with God. We were created in shalom with self. When God made Adam and Eve, it tells us at the end of chapter two that they were naked without shame. You think of your kids when they're little and they get out of the shower and they run through the house naked and they don't even care, right? Because there's no shame. There's no insecurity. They're not embarrassed. This is how God created Adam and Eve. There was no, there was no uh, oh my goodness, what are other people gonna think of me in this moment right now? They're, they weren't like that. They, there was no brokenness within themselves. They were whole and complete and in harmony with who they were created to be. We were created in shalom with others. Man and woman were both created equally together in the image of God. And they were to become one. God said it's not good for the man to be alone. He created Eve and then to become one. It said this is why a man will leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. This beautiful picture of relational harmony within marriage but also within other relationships. That's how we were designed, to be in shalom with God, with self, with others, and with the world. God created Adam and Eve and he said, now go and have dominion over the rest of creation. Create, cultivate, build, bring my image to bear in the world around you. Right, this is, the, and he said, it was uh, when he, at the end of the whole creation, he said it's very good. This is how God created us, to be in shalom with God, with self, with others in the world. But what we see is that sin and Satan broke that shalom. When Adam and Eve believed the lie and, and decided to disobey God, we lost the peace that the world had. Our shalom with God was broken. Suddenly Adam and Eve were hiding from God when he came to see them in the garden and they were exiled from the garden. They couldn't be with God anymore because of their sin. Our shalom with ourself was broken. They were initially created naked and unashamed, but when they disobeyed God, they discovered that they were naked and they, they, made, they took fig leaves and made clothes for themselves because they were embarrassed. When God came looking for them, they were hiding from him because they were afraid because they were naked. Right? So there's, suddenly there's shame, suddenly there's embarrassment, suddenly there's insecurity, all these things that broke within ourselves because sin and Satan broke that peace. We were created in shalom with self, but we were also created in shalom with others, and sin and Satan broke that shalom with others. Right? Uh, Adam and Eve suddenly began to have strife within their marriage. God told Eve, because of your sin, your desire will be contrary to, hus to your husband, and he shall dominate you, rule over you. Now there's dysfunction in the relationships. In Genesis chapter four, their first two kids, Cain and Abel, Cain murdered his brother, right? Because sin broke our shalom with others and sin broke our shalom with the world. Suddenly Eve has pain in childbirth. Adam works the ground 
by the sweat of his brow, but it produces thorns and thistles. The, the, the world is not as it should be. Now there's famine, now there's disease, now there are wars, now there is death because sin and Satan broke the shalom that we had with God, with self, with others in the world. And if we're going to get the shalom back, we have to restore it in the right order. Shalom must be fixed by following the right steps and the right order. So I think about it this way. My kids love to build Lego sets. Um, And every now and again, there's a ball that flies in a long way and hits a Lego set and breaks part of it. Well, you can't just go and fix that Lego set by putting this piece and this piece, uh, what looks good, because if you don't fix the steps in the right order, it doesn't hold together right. There's some piece in the middle that's holding this piece together, that's holding that piece together, and if that piece isn't right, this doesn't work right. So sometimes when a Lego set falls apart, we have to take the whole thing apart and go all the way back to step one and start to rebuild that Lego set. It is the same with shalom. We must go all the way back to the beginning in order to restore shalom. If we try to fix what's broken in the world or with others or in ourselves, without first going to restore our broken shalom with God, then nothing else works, right? We have the enlightenment. We have scientific advancement. We have technology. And then what happens? World War I. And what did they say about World War I? It's the war to end all wars, except 20 years later we had World War II, right? And then we had Vietnam, and then we had 9-11, and then Russia invades Ukraine, and the list goes on and on and on and on, and there are some countries in places like Africa that have always been at war, that have always been oppressed. For all of our progress and advancement and science, we haven't accomplished anything, right? Or, or, or let's think about relationships with others. There are many different things that I could pull out of this, but let's just talk about one, racism. I'm surprised sometimes when I hear people say, oh, racism isn't a thing anymore. We've moved beyond that. All these people calling out racism, 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 they're stuck in the past. Well, we haven't eliminated greed. We haven't eliminated lust. We haven't eliminated selfishness. We haven't eliminated lying. Why in the world would we think we've eliminated racism? It's the only sin that exists that we deny the existence of. Well, I wonder why. I don't know, right? We haven't fixed any of these things. The world is just as broken now. Relationships are just as broken now as they always have been, right? Or or think about internally in our own hearts. Insecurity, depression, despair, anxiety, the mental health crisis that is plaguing our world today for all of our psychology and all of our therapy and all of our self-help books and all of the things that we've done and, and learned and all that, we're not making any progress because you can't fix what's broken until you go all the way back to the beginning and fix the shalom that was broken first. And that's the first step to restoring shalom in the world is to restore shalom with God through Jesus In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this verse will be familiar to you. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Shalom. What did the angels say when they came to announce the birth of Christ to the shepherds? Luke 2.14, 
Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Apostle Paul picked this up in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first step to bringing shalom to the world is to go all the way back to the beginning and say, do I have shalom with God through Jesus. Jesus came and gave his life on the cross, died in my place to pay the penalty of my sin so that my shalom with God could be restored, so that I could go back into the garden and have peace with God. And if I am not at peace with God, none of the other things that are broken will be fixed for very long. Temporary solutions that aren't even very effective. The first thing we need is to restore our shalom with God through Jesus. Once we are in a right place with God and have peace with him, the Holy Spirit comes to live in our physical bodies and he begins to restore shalom with ourself, within ourself. He begins to fix what's broken. He uproots the insecurities. He pulls out the anxieties. He he, uh, reveals the sinful patterns of behavior. He shows us these things and begins to transform us In Christian circles, we call that sanctification. It really just means the Holy Spirit restoring shalom within ourselves so that we can be complete and whole in Christ. And from that place of of peace with God and wholeness in Christ, we're then able to restore shalom with those around us by extending God's love to them. Now, I don't need you to validate me. I am validated in Christ. I am now free to love you unconditionally without needing anything back from you. Now I can forgive you as I have been forgiven. I can extend mercy as I have received mercy. I don't need that because I have all that I need in Christ. I'm at shalom with God himself and now I can begin to extend that love and that shalom with others around me. And and we restore then shalom to the world by creating communities of shalom that bless the world with a glimpse of heaven. The reality is we will never have complete shalom restored in the world until Christ returns because the presence of sin is still here. And And when Jesus comes back, he will eradicate the presence of sin But while we're waiting on him to return, he calls us together to become a community of shalom, of wholeness, of love, of peace, so that we can, from that place, create a sanctuary to bless the world, to extend God's love, to proclaim with the angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth, shalom to everyone who comes to Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be, a community of shalom, at peace with God, at peace internally in ourselves, at peace with one another, and then extending that peace to the world around us. Now, I don't wanna just talk about shalom. I want to actually practice shalom. And so I'm gonna have Stephanie come up so that we can practice God's peace together.
Well, this morning, we're going to take just a few minutes here to experience God's peace through the act of confession. And that is a tricky word because for some of us, um, that provokes a response of resistance in us, like we don't want to be exposed, right? Or we don't want to have to admit where we've been off. But the reality is that confession in God's word is just an invitation into his healing and into right relationship with him, into the forgiveness that's already given to us by Jesus Christ. And so confession is a totally normal and safe thing for us to engage in this morning together and hopefully very liberating too. The only appropriate way uh, this morning for me to lead this is by uh, confessing things that are true, true for me to need to, to confess. And so I'm going to read some of these this morning to you in an act of vulnerability. Um, and I'm only doing that um, not to draw attention to myself, but to just create a space where hopefully you, as I read, are able to be honest and vulnerable with your loving Father. And as I read, I just trust in confidence that the Holy Spirit, who deeply loves you and longs like a parent for you to feel his peace in right relationship, will bring to mind anything that you have uh, that he wants to have you get rid of um, in the act of confession. And so please, if there's something that sticks out to you, take tune me out and you just get right with the Lord. Um, we're also doing this because we're about to receive communion. This is a great way of getting our hearts ready for that. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning to speak, to reveal, especially the things that we don't really like to see about ourselves. So we invite you to do that. And we remember that you are a good and loving God who has already paid the full price for us to walk in forgiveness and healing. And so we're not afraid to confess or be exposed before you this morning. There's nothing we could tell you that would surprise you anyway. So we do it in order to be right with you this morning. So I confess, Lord, that I often distract myself from being present with you in my days through social media and entertainment. I even allow myself to believe that it's okay to distract myself so long as I think I am improving myself with learning or listening to sermons or informative podcasts. I'm confessing that I know I regularly would rather be consuming content than allowing myself to be consumed by your character. I confess that sometimes I allow my thoughts and emotions to be governed by the news I take in throughout the day. When my guard is down, I also admit that fear creeps into my heart and I acknowledge that judgment and disgust have circled my mind and even at times come out of my mouth towards leaders and others that I don't understand. So help me, Holy Spirit, to see the events happening in the world through your eyes so that I can be a person of peace. I want to be governed by the mind of Christ, which is one of love and power and soundness, not sound bites of hate and fear. I confess that I have a habit of compulsively saying yes to people and opportunities because I long to be appreciated and pleasing in others' eyes. This makes my life super busy and without restful margins to enjoy time with you or my kids or husband. 
And the hard part about admitting this is the realization that it means my heart isn't always set on pleasing you first. And I am sorry for that. I also confess that some of that compulsivity is rooted in the false beliefs that sound like this to me. If I don't do it, no one will, which is my pride. Or this is a way I can prove to others I'm capable and competent, which is my insecurity. Or wow, they need me, <laughs> it's my identity. So I confess, Lord, the false roles and responsibility I've taken upon myself they're too heavy anyway. <laughs> you are the only savior and the one who meets the needs of others and takes care of your people better than I ever could. I also ask you in your mercy to unwind me from the false belief that I can earn and prove my value and worth through doing and being for others. Your love and peace are free gifts that I could never earn anyways. I confess that sometimes I escape <laughs> by eating food, especially food that is addictive in nature and not good for my long-term health. Sometimes I escape by spending money on material stuff just for the temporary satisfaction of owning it. And I'm sorry that I settle for lesser pleasures than the pleasure of experience, the peace and freedom of your perfect provision and care for my life. And lastly, I confess that sometimes I just don't want to do the things that connect me to you. I don't always understand this resistance in me, but it is there. Sometimes I just don't want to spend time with you, or I only want to spend time with you if it is on my terms the way I want to spend it. Sometimes I just don't want to read the Bible or slow down, be quiet, meditate, and pray. It is like an invisible wall in my heart that I have erected myself that keeps me away from the very essentials to being connected with you. So God, I thank you that you love to kick down those walls, and I ask that you would. Holy Spirit, I need you to help me want you more than I want to be unplugged from you because of my stubborn flesh. Lord, would you set us free this morning in the power of confession to feel relieved from the burdens that are not ours to carry, from the strain of sin, from the heaviness. We thank you for your faithfulness to reveal these things to us in your love. And we have a greater confession than any of these things, which is, Jesus Christ, you are our Lord to the glory of God our Father. Amen. Thank you, Stephanie. It takes a lot of courage to confess in a group of people this big. But that is an example, a model of what Christian confession looks like and I hope that it encourages and guides you in your own practice of confession. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your, all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Anxiety is a hindrance to peace. And so uh, what I wanna do, we're, we have communion up here. We're going to uh, partake in communion a little bit differently uh, today. Uh, somewhere in a seat pocket near you is a notepad with a piece of paper. And I want you to rip off a, a piece of that paper and grab a pen out of the pocket and I want you to write on that paper an anxiety 
or a fear or a worry or a pattern of behavior that hinders your peace, you can write a confession. Just take a moment and write out something on that paper. And as you have written that down, I want you to take that and wad it up to a paper wad. And we're going to practice casting our anxiety on him. When we're going to celebrate communion by coming up. There's two stations. There's a trash can at each station. And what I want you to do is come up and throw that anxiety into the trash can and then receive his body and blood that restores your shalom with God, that heals the shalom within you. Whatever that anxiety is, we're going to exchange it for the body and blood of Christ. Now, we know that this isn't the literal body and literal blood of Jesus. These are symbols. But it's a reminder, it's a physical representation of practicing the peace of God together and you can imagine that uh, throwing that anxiety away and then receiving his peace through the cross. Since we have been justified by faith, faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we prepare to come up, we thank you for dying on the cross so that our shalom could be restored with God the Father and your Holy Spirit could come in and begin to heal inside of us what needs healed. And Lord, I pray that you would meet us as we come forward and cast our anxiety on you because you care about us. In Jesus' name, amen. The juice is non-alcoholic grape juice and so I invite you to stand, come forward and receive communion.